You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. This sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. People will say things to friends on a podcast that they wouldn't necessarily share otherwise. A guy entered my brain and looked at the pictures of my life and then detached from me psychically. And had I not been there, I still wouldn't believe it. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we'll share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. You can find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to www.beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening site of choice. For this episode, I sat down with chef, anthropologist, social justice advocate, and global thought leader, Andrew Zimmern. Andrew's a four-time James Beard Award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, and teacher. He is regarded as one of the most versatile and knowledgeable personalities in the food world. As a creator, executive producer, and host of the Bizarre Foods franchise on Travel Channel, he has explored cultures in more than 170 countries, prompting impactful ways to think about, create, and live with food. For this discussion, we sat down on James Beard Award Weekend in Chicago, and I caught up with Andrew and Chef Lee Wollen's office at Boca Restaurant. You may notice me telling people to come in the room. You may hear a phone ringing. After all, it is an operating restaurant. For the food lovers listening, Andrew talks about pioneers in the chef world and shares some crazy stories about people like Chef Thomas Keller, Chef Larry Forgione, and Chef Jonathan Waxman. If you are trying to decide a cause to get involved with in your own life, Andrew gives some great advice and describes who, why, and where he gives his money and time to. Before we get going, come back and join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate. This is a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. Andrew discusses his Chairman Mao-style red braised chicken that he says universally cannot be disliked. It is a family favorite, and he serves it at least once a week in his own home. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Andrew Zimmer. Do you want to set us up where we are right now? Oh, yeah. Chicago, Illinois, the sub-basement of Boca Restaurant on Halsey. Halstead. Halstead. Close. Well, I'll call it Halsey, though. Yeah. In Chef Lee Wolin's office. Just blocks from your house, as I've come to understand. True. First of all, another beard. Congratulations to you. you. Outstanding personality host. Correct. It's exciting. It's slash host. It is slash host. I I have it written as such. I like the slash because when I say personality slash host, it makes me sound like it's somehow affiliated with the guitar player from Guns N' Roses, and I think that makes it a little cooler. Yeah. You play guitar. I do play guitar. Really badly, but I love it. I just bought an old guitar that I've been looking for a while. Unique 71 all-white Telecaster Fender that just arrived. Very excited about it. I know nothing about guitars, but I just looked at you and said, wow. It's good because it's like saying like when someone looks at you and goes, yeah, 58 Shelby Ford Mustang. And I know nothing about cars, but I would always go, wow. Just because that's like what guys do. Anytime someone says something with that tenor in their voice, you have to just go, whoa. Yeah, like cool. I'm a huge fan of your team. 
Molly and Dustine. I know there's many more. And I want to raise a glass that I don't have in front of me to Dusty, who's celebrating five years cancer-free today. So a big shout out to her. She sent me your bio yesterday and it was long. And so I sat home and read it all day. Someone had asked me in an interview the other day, I was talking about a bunch of stuff that I did, and they said, is there anything else that you do? And I was like, those are only like the first three. I got like another 14 jobs. What else do you want to know? It says chef, activist, this and that, and then it says anthropologist. Everyone insisted that that go in there. and Really? Yeah. and it go- I thought that was like a you thing saying- No, it actually goes back to a story. I, I, I'm actually very embarrassed by it, but- you know, it was like seven, eight years ago, and I was asked to give a lecture at a state university, Big Ten school, huge anthropology department, and the dean of graduate studies of anthropology at this university, you know, one of the, you know, top handful of people in his field, introduced me as a fellow anthropologist to a colleague, and I thought he was going to do it a lot that night at the faculty cocktail party after I taught. So I went up to him and I said, I'm kind of embarrassed. Someone gave you the wrong information, but I don't have a degree in any of this. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I know. I said, I'm just doing a TV show. He, and he said, no, you're not. He said, I have tenured faculty that have not spent as many hours with the protected tribes huh. around the world living with them and having them accept you. Wow. As you have. And I was just like, I sat there in shock. Yeah. And I said, really? And the more that I've been with tribes, I'm talking about real tribes, because I do consider, you know, like motorcycle geeks a Sturgis or a tribe. We're down in Lee's office at Boca, right? So all the gastronauts upstairs, they're a tribe. You sure. see them everywhere. Yeah. Right? Same faces at the same parties, yeah. right? But I'm talking about real tribe, the protected ones around the world, the Gentoisi and Botswana and the Himba and Namibia and the Laosu and uh, the Golden Triangle and the Pilchicoa Indians in the Pilchi River in the Amazon, you know, on and on and on, the protected tribes. And what I do, because they all, tribal people have such an immense skill set. They're like, every single one of them is a doctor, a soldier, a warrior, an architect, a designer, an illustrator, a husband, a pharmacist, a farmer, right? I mean, they, you have to have all those skills. And if you don't have them, you're useless to the tribe and you get pushed out like the old, you know, water buffalo down by the edge of the, that's about to get eaten by either the lion or the alligator or crocodile, depending on what National Geographic video you're you're watching that week. I always like to go in a, for a day or two and just like work and live with them. And then we pick up our cameras and we start shooting because we just get much more out of them. Are you shooting while you're doing that? No. Really? We try to spend a day where I'm just with them, hanging out. Because it's, number one, I want to. Number two, you sort of have to because you can't scout relationships. Like, we can scout locations, but like in the tribal can't world. Can't do a pre-interview, really? I mean, it's real easy, like, if we wanted to put you in the show, right? But it's not easy when you're doing a hidden tribe up in the mountains of central Thailand. I always like to sort of see who's who and what's what and sort of get a take on how things are going. When I was with the Himba, we did that. Then we had a really fun four or five days with them shooting, including our translator's mother who allowed us to... The Himba women are the ones that are covered in red clay mixed with soured beef fat, and they do their hair up, beautiful decorations, and have all this intricate jewelry and clothing that tells you how many animals they have, how many husbands they have, how many children they have, so they can all size each other up. And they spend like three hours getting ready in the morning. We wanted to film this discreetly, of course, PG version. And at the end of the whole thing, our translator's mother... (laughs) 
turns to me and says in her language that was then translated by her son, awkward, my mother would like you to come back tonight so she can show you how himba men get the ochre on their chests. And it took me like 10 seconds to do the math on that. The next night, the chief gave me his 14-year-old daughter as a, he was trying to get, all his other daughters were married off. I showed him a picture of my house, and I had a lot of grazing land, as he said, but no animals. So he gave me his daughter and a male and female goat as a gift that night. All this is in the show. It was fantastic. But my point being is that at the end of the show, when the cameras weren't rolling, we're packing up, a Jeep comes up about 200 yards away from the area where the tribe lives in this corral with all the little grass huts and someone is sort of like opening the gate and pushing the animals in and this photographer gets on the top of the Range Rover with his tripod and he starts shooting at the tribe you know from 200 yards away with big telephoto lens and he takes 200 300 pictures and then gets in the car and leaves and the shaman who I was talking to said to me he said what is it about those people that just come and take our pictures are we that awful do they not want to talk to us do they not want to eat with us do they not want to live with us do they Mm. not want to at least greet us And in my mind, I was thinking to myself, good one, Zimmer. You make a lot of mistakes during your life, but at least when you're you're on the road, you're the best version of yourself that you could be. That's incredible. I like myself more on the road than I do at home. Really? Yeah. Hence, I am an anthropologist because Dr. Stevenson said so. That's a fair assessment. There you go. One of my best friend's little brothers travels the world with like not a dollar to his name basically and he meets people and hitchhikes and i think it's like freaking crazy yeah but he loves it and so he posted something on facebook the other day saying if you see a homeless traveler offer them some help offer them your place to stay offer that you know and yeah i was on my way to a meeting downtown here in chicago and there was a woman that had a sign that homeless traveler and I had just finished my Thai lunch and I didn't finish it all. I'm like, yeah. I don't give this person my food. Yeah. So I said, you hungry? She's like, yes. I gave her my leftover lunch, gave her five bucks. And it was like, I gave her a new car or something. And she's like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it was like that simple gesture. It's actually a great way to walk through life. I mean, I'd rather walk through life arms open to experiences than arms closed. And oftentimes, especially at quote unquote at home here in America, business deals and the wife and the son and the this and the that and the company and this. And you know, just you just get caught up with the minutia of everything. And when you're on the road, all of that sort of goes away and you're just focused on the experience. And I show up as a better version of myself. And then, I mean, I believe that's the transformative power of travel, but I also believe that it, I bring it back with me little bits at a time. Is there a place that had the most influence or impact on your life? Or a Botswana. You? Yeah. I just changed the most there in some really big ways. And some of it was because of the actual experience of being with the tribe that I was with. Shorthand version, uh, we had gone hunting and the tribe made rope. They make rope whenever they need it. And it lasts couple months in the sort of harsh climate that they live in. And they don't have personal possessions, all community property. So we made these snap snares and we walked 10 miles to get these berries. Then we walked five more miles and put the berries in the grass and set the snap snares. And then we came back the next day and there were birds and all the snap snares and I'm trying to be helpful, right? So I bent down, took the knife out of my pocket and I cut the went to cut one of the ropes and one of the shamans who was with us was like freaked out on me and I stopped and he said why are you cutting the rope and I you know I was like we have twine in five drawers in my kitchen at home of course you you cut the rope you throw the twine away well they make the rope and they save it they carefully unknot everything and they roll it up and they 
put little ties around them and then they put them in this leather pouch in the center of the little village so anyone who needs it can use it. And since that time when I came home, I have been, I'm the greenest son of a bitch. Really? Oh my God. I, I mean, I recycle everything. I reuse. I mean, I am so pared down. I am greener than the Jolly Green Giant. Literally overnight, because they, I was so mortally embarrassed, and I and I realized we're so wasteful. And it actually set me on a course for a lot of the food waste activism that I'm involved in. A lot of the solution-minded stuff, and that, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. I actually saw a person, and had I not been there, and had we not recorded it on camera, I still wouldn't believe it. I watch it sometimes and I still can't believe it myself, but uh, a guy entered my brain and looked at the pictures of my life and then detached from me psychically. And then he went to sleep in his little house and I wouldn't let anyone near him until he woke up and I insisted the translator and the cameraman stay with me outside his hut so that I could ask him what he was doing. I needed to know with certainty that he really had done what I thought he had done. And I asked him and he said, I was looking at the pictures of your life and I was crying. I mean, it was tear fed. We, this is all on camera in our Botswana show for those that want to see it. But I, I asked him, I said, what's because when you meet someone like that, I feel you ask them, like, what our purpose is here on life. I mean, I just would be remiss if I didn't. And then I felt like Bill Murray in Caddyshack. You know, he's going to say Gunga La Gunga or something. He just looked at me. He said, we're just supposed to love each other. And then he laughed and muttered, shaking his head, walking away. Like anyone who is a spiritual teacher to a tribe that doesn't believe in personal possessions would be. I mean, just, they're incredible people. They eat with the seasons. They don't harvest harvest any animals that they can't eat all of at one meal. A design for living that we could really learn from. It's just an absolutely fascinating group of people. Interesting. So I've known you for a while, like through the different worlds that we know each other from, the festival worlds. And you're this guy who doesn't walk into a room with 25 people, but like there could be a room of five people or 500 and you know when you're there because your your energy's like pretty awesome. <laughs> Thank you. No, for real. You're like this kind, genuine, smart, real human doing incredible things. And I want to touch on some of those. Yeah, so It's funny you say that because you're not the first person to mention that. And I always... The first thing that pops into my mind when someone has that says that is that I am actually a very ordinary person with a very extraordinary job. And I think if you maintain that point of view about yourself, it's pretty healthy. I just see a lot of other people in our industry behave in ways that I never, ever, ever want to be seen behaving that way. So it's mostly out of fear. I think the other thing too is that I started getting into television when I was about 10, 12 years sober. And I probably had just enough ego tamping down and just and done just enough work on myself and done achieved just enough emotional sobriety so that I could handle this whole crazy thing so now whatever 15 years later I think having a regular spiritual practice having a commitment to things that are bigger than the TV fame game has helped me and I think people pick up on that so that's nice where are you from Born and raised in New York City, New York, 71st Street, went to one school my whole life, Dalton, 
Give me some like food memories. Like when you were a kid. Food was our life, which was very unusual because most people didn't give a shit about it. My mom had roomed in at Mills College in the 40s with Trader Vic's daughter. And so my mother was cooking Polynesian and Asian food at a time when everyone was swinging American with LaChoy. My father was part of a group of people that were growing an ad agency in New York and he was traveling a lot for business overseas. And I would go with him. We also skied, so I would go overseas with him all the time skiing, even just for like weird long weekends. I know it sounds completely pretentious, but my parents had divorced and, you know, my dad had me on certain weekends. And if he had to travel to Paris, he would just, we'd fly out Thursday, fly home Monday or Tuesday. And I saw sides of that city that I never would have seen if we were vacationing because my dad had to have dinner with a bunch of colleagues and that colleague liked to go to this bar to eat seafood down when Leal really was a sleepy back alley filled with stevedores eating the best seafood in these dangerous bars late at night. And so the platters of bigorneau, those little blue periwinkles would go on the table for free before you ordered. And I was just sitting there with a book reading or coloring and my dad was talking to everyone. I just ate all the snails and we traveled and skied and lived and my father loved food. He was an incredible gourmand, friend of James Beard's who lived right around the corner from his apartment. Most people in Manhattan never went out to Arthur Avenue. You know, they're, oh, Italian food, let's go downtown to Little Italy. And, you know, my father was like, even though there were, and this is the late 60s, even though Little Italy in Manhattan was still really Italian then, really Italian. My dad liked the fact that there was more Italian spoken on the streets in Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. I mean, he just loved that. He also went to Bronx High School of Science, so I think he'd like to head out there. So we saw sides of the city that were just incredible. I was actually just had dinner at Namois in New York, and I was talking to my friend Wilson, who owns it currently. His uncle had bought it from one of the cousins in the family in the cousin's grandfather was who started the restaurant 108 years ago or whatever. My father and grandmother took me there probably for the first time when I was five or six, and my grandmother had been taken there by her mother, Nikki Russ Faderman. She and I figured out, because we have a picture of my grandmother with her grandfather in the store. It's pretty crazy. So that was the life that I led. My grandmother lived on the Upper West Side. She was the head of the sisterhood at Mount Naboa Synagogue, which meant that she was a big macher. So walking around, shopping with my grandmother on Broadway at Zabar's and Barney Greengrass and all the different places she would go was like, I mean, the smell of pickled fish and sawdust and just, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, my food life was amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. At a time when food wasn't held up to be this cultural totem that we know and love today. But I knew that I wanted to be in the food business by the time I was five or six. Really? I oh, yeah. What was the first thing you ever cooked like that you were proud of? Uh, rendering schmaltz with ribbonus at my grandmother's house. How old were you? Four. And I had to watch it, but she knew she could trust me to watch it the way you tell a little five-year-old. Now you watch that, and the minute those little chicken skins get all crispy and brown, you'd let grandma know. That was the first thing. But then I started cooking all the time. That's an experience, a memory, a smell. Like, oh, that's yeah. My, everything. my grandmother's little kitchen at 411 West End Avenue, she could cook for 30 people in three hours flat, multiple courses with hors d'oeuvres, and just kick it out of there alone. The kitchen was 
I mean, the size of a closet. Everyone knew. My father was weekends in the summer. He loved to go clamming in the bay. He loved to go surf casting for striped bass. I was a skinny little kid. He'd hold me by my ankles and he'd drop me down in between the rocks of the jetty on Georgica Beach and Main Beach and East Hampton. And I'd pull up big ropes of mussels. We'd go eeling in the harbor, seven, eight, nine, ten. He taught me a lot of really cool stuff. So then I could do it with my friends and then I could do it on the show. So, yeah, I'm kind of an outdoorsy time. I'm a big, I hunt a lot, I fish a lot, I forage a lot. I get that all from my dad. What was the first cookbook you ever owned? Owned myself personally? Maybe one you had around the house. The first cookbooks that I read cover to cover, I was probably eight or nine years old, and it was a Michael Field book called Entertaining. It was a three-volume of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Julia's book. There was a Craig Claiborne book. I mean, these were all the books, and I could see the bookcase, and I could see them in a row in my parents' bookshelf at our house in Long Island. And I just remember the summer I read them all because it was the summer my mother said, you can cook what we grow in the garden. That can be your job this year. So it was like gazpacho and ratatouille, gazpacho and ratatouille, (laughs) and gazpacho and ratatouille. And then something that no human being should ever make for another human being because it's irredeemable and send all comments to Kaplan. Zucchini bread. Fuck zucchini bread. When the zucchinis get too big and woody and nasty, people are like, Oh, zucchini bread, because they think you can get rid of a lot of it. How about pickled zucchini? How about just cutting them into alamettes and doing fried zucchini? How about doing a million other things with them other than zucchini bread? Oh, What cookbook do you recommend? Like someone, maybe for the people who are not super savvy in the kitchen, who aren't going to pick up some molecular... Do you know something? I used to have the same answer to that question for like 30 years, and I would always say, get one of the classic teaching books. Marcella Hazan's Making of a Cook, Julia's On Food, Jacques Pepin's Le Method, and I think I may have just interchanged a couple titles, but James Beard's Theory and Practice of Good Cooking. I mean, on and on. There's all these great ones, right? Mark Bittman, How to Cook Everything. I mean, it's a simple, easy answer to give to someone. But I've realized that human beings get bored by that. And I usually ask them, what do you like to eat? Because if they say, oh, I love Thai food, then I may have a different recommendation for them. If they say- Like pa Correct. <laughs> if they say, I really like desserts, maybe it's a Dory Greenspan book. If they want to get into a little bit of modernist kind of stuff, maybe a Jean-Georges. If you give someone something where they can be successful because they're interested in it, it'll be better. What was your first restaurant job? My first restaurant job was shucking clams at the, and only clams, because I did it sitting on a milk carton because I was illegally employed at age 13 at the Quiet Clam in uh, East Hampton, Long Island. My parents' friends owned the restaurant. Fantastic couple, Irene and Maggie. I knew I wanted to be in the business. And my parents said, get a job. So all of my schmuck idiot friends got jobs at the local landscaping place for like two bucks an hour hauling manure and digging trenches. I mean, like the intro job at the landscaper. And it was 6 a.m. Junior high, high school. High school. Yeah. 6 a.m. in the morning, summers, 6 a.m. in the morning to like 3 in the afternoon. I thought that was lunacy. I wanted to be on the sleep late, go to the beach, hang with girls, and go to work at 5 o'clock and be around adults where there was drinking and drugging and more girls. So that's what I did. Give us a fast track of your kitchen career because you work for some like incredible Thomas Kellers of the world. For someone who is as fucked up as I was all the time, and, and I got fired by a lot of people too, but the, the way the restaurant when did that business- start, When did you 
starting to get fucked up? Like we're talking drugs and alcohol. Oh yeah, I started to develop a serious, serious problem when I was about 13, 14 years old. It only took me about a year of using before I was regularly using hallucinogenics and cocaine and quaaludes. I mean, you you have to remember this is the Studio 54 era in New York. Len Bias had not dropped dead of a heart attack yet and that was a very big deal culturally. People don't remember the Maryland All-American basketball player. He had a problem with his heart, but he tried coke once and died from it. That scared the shit out of a lot of people because for the previous year and a half, two years in New York, cocaine had just exploded. And when you watch that movie, that documentary, Cocaine Cowboys, and they talk about when the coke came up to New York, like I remember, not because I remember what they were talking about in the documentary, I just remember the office is getting busy. I just remember what happened in New York at that time, dovetailed with what was there. Yeah, things were wild and drugs weren't bad and our parents were okay as long as we were doing them at home, quote unquote. So yeah, things, by the time I got to college, I was a daily heroin user. It was not a, it was not a good thing. Did you cook through college? No. Well, I did when they kicked me out. Every time they would kick me out for a semester, I'd like run away to Europe or run away to Asia and cook there. And I'd kind of straighten out and then I would come back. So let me give you the cooking CV. I worked at the Quiet Clam Summers and during wintertime, I cook. There was a chef who passed away a couple years ago named Leslie Revson, who had a restaurant called One Fifth at One Fifth Avenue. One of my family friends, Frank Granite, who was a restaurateur in the 70s and 80s in New York, hooked me up with her. And I got to work one night a week in the One Fifth Kitchen, which taught me a lot. I went to college and every time I got kicked out, I would go off and cook and I would, now they call them stages. Back then it was a job with no money. Oftentimes you could sleep on the banquettes or another cook would have a bedroom or something. You contribute something dollar-wise and you basically could eat or drink for free and learn how to cook. And I did that at Ala Colomba and Taverna de la Fenice in Venice. I did it at a couple fancy hotels in Hong Kong and got turned on to cooking Asian food. I got the same kind of joy. I worked for Alain Sandarin at his restaurant, 1982. Came back to New York. Summers, I always wanted to be out in Long Island and doing my thing. And I had some fun day jobs there. One summer, I was the chef at Conscience Point Inn, the Southampton nightclub that was more famous stories have come out of there. But the summer of 83 or 84, that was, I mean, I still have an article written about me in Hamptons Magazine up on the wall in our kitchen, which was my first press clip. That was a crazy four or five months. We were open like a month before a Memorial Day, but weekends only. And then summer, it was seven nights a week. And then like, September was just weekends and then it was closed, but that was insanity. A lot of fun. And then I got serious about cooking and came into New York because I had worked at the risotto station at Ala Colomba. I could get a job in Italian restaurants working the risotto station because it takes a real art. Usually, if you think about a kitchen, they'll only give you two to four burners, right? So you need to how to rotate your product and be cooking in multiples and really be paying. I mean, if you're in the risotto station, there's no forgetting. If you're working the salad station and the chef is like, I need a mixed green on the fly, you may get yelled at after service. But I mean, in a serious Italian kitchen, you can't screw up risotto because then you're 25, 30 minutes behind. And so I had learned to cook risotto and had worked that station at Alla Colomba. And so I knew it. There were some famous Italian restaurants in New York, Alla Colonna. It's how I met Elio Guadalini from Elio's was helping them out and then ended up running the front of the house. I was the general manager at Petaluma. I like to do a lot of different jobs there, not just cooking in the kitchen. I worked at Arcadia for Ann Rosenzweig. I worked at Raquel for 
Thomas Keller. I'm probably blanking on a couple others. Most famously, both Larry Forgione and Jonathan Waxman both fired me after one service. Well, it would have been jams for Not for the, Waxy. Yeah. And old, old school jams. American you work place. You American place? For Larry, I guess right when it opened. Yeah. Well, both of them were very smart. They walked along the hallway and you know, took one look at me and were like, this kid's fucked up. Get him out of here. And much the upset of their sous chefs who were supervising my, who were thrilled because I had skills. So it meant that there'd be some pressure relief for them. The restaurant business is one of those places that's so mercenary. Once I became a chef, I didn't do it that often, but sometimes you knew that kid's trouble, but he can pump out a hundred brunch orders in 20 minutes. And I'm sorry, I know he's stealing two bottles of vodka a day from the restaurant, but at that cost, it's worth it to have him around. Let's let him get away with it. I remember making that argument to a restaurant owner in a restaurant that I was managing at one point. I was like, we can't fire him. The guy makes poached eggs like a son of a bitch. The cream rises to the crop in restaurant. If you can do the job, you do the job. Now, Larry and Jonathan, I thought were very, very smart in that they said, no, we got to get rid of this. This guy's trouble. They knew you were drinking. they just knew it was, they didn't even have to know early twenties. They just had to like, look at me and say, I mean, they just knew they were smart. They were, they, they just intuitively knew not a good person. Get rid of him. Now, Waxman is a very close friend of mine now. I've had a chance to spend some time with Larry since then, and it's all good. It's pretty funny. We have we have quite a laugh about it. Thomas Keller found me, and I love telling this story because there's a lot of stories about Thomas Keller. Most of them end with, he's so intense, he's so hardcore, he's so soulless, all the rest of it. I know a much different man. In the kitchen, an absolute authoritarian. Tyrant's the wrong word, but I mean, everything was done his way, but he had vision and he had the chops and everyone who came through his kitchens is better off for it. And he deserves that respect. He was always really kind to me. He was always very funny to me. I always engaged him on a funny level. One day he came in on a Sunday morning to do wine inventory with one of the managers at Raquel and he opened the door. There I was on the floor. I had passed out and there were three empty bottles of Chateau La Conseillante. And I remember the wine because in those days with lead foiling and all the rest of that on all those bottles, it had the most beautiful blue foiling to cap the cork. I loved that wine. Someone went for wine. I stuck a pack of matches in the light. I mean, you know, something stupid. Drank some wine, passed out. He found me, said, get out of here. But he was amongst several people, Steve Colt at Spartina in Los Angeles and Ken Friedman in New York, not April's partner, different one all put in money in case I ever showed up alive somewhere. Because that was the time, at that point, I went homeless. And I mean, just bad things started to happen from there on in. I saw Thomas at seven years sober for the first time. I went out to Aspen and he was doing a demonstration. I was standing way in the back and he stopped the whole thing in the middle of it and just walked up and gave me a hug. And I started crying and he whispered to me, he said, I thought the next time I saw you, you'd be dead. Were you sober at that point? Yeah, I was sober seven years at that point. There's a beautiful, tender, loving piece of him that I wish more people got a chance to see. I think it would soften his image a bit, although I don't think he wants his image softened. 
a bit. I meet a lot of people. I work, you know, with Rachel Ray, and yeah. I meet a lot of people, and they're like, how's this one? How's that one? How's Andrew? And I'm like, Andrew's the nicest man you'll ever meet. Did you know he was homeless? They're like, what? Like, yeah. they think, here you go. I, you know, someone, yeah. everything's handed to you. Rachel did a great piece on that. She put back on her local journalist hat. I trusted her. She told me, she said, we'll tell the story. I'll make sure that it's done the right way. And I said, okay, it can come across the wrong way. I was just a tawdry drug addict and alcoholic. I mean, I was just a mess. When did you know that you needed to do something about it? When I was a freshman in college. I very quickly, there's a lot of alcoholics that are drug addicts that argue with you. You know, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And they know they are. But they're, they're, they're still at that no, I'm not stage. Then there's people who look you in the eyes and say, fuck you, get out of here, which is the, that's the, I don't care that you know I'm a mess or that I'm a mess. I just would rather stop having this conversation because I need a drink. The can't quit but can't stop drinking. When we're talking to each other, we call ourselves real alcoholics. The long and the short of it is tawdry, awful. I ended up stealing purses off park benches on Madison Avenue and taking the passports and the driver's licenses and credit cards down and selling them in Alphabet City just so I could earn my place in this bottle gang. And we squatted a building on Sullivan Street about five houses up from where Sandra Bullock has her house. It's very chic now. I took my wife back to on the New York tour and I said, do you want to see the building? So we turned the corner at Houston and Sullivan and walked down a couple blocks and I hadn't been down there in 15 years or whatever. And I realized that the neighborhood had gentrified to the point that the ground floor of the building we squatted was an Agnes B. I was trying to get all the sympathy in the world. I was like, <laughs> look at this horror show. I live there. Here's yeah. like this beautiful, remodeled, restored brownstone. It's gorgeous. I lived on the second floor of an abandoned building. There was no running water. There was no electricity. It was open to the elements. The casements were in the windows. I slept on a pile of dirty clothes and stole bottles of Comet cleanser and sprinkled them around the pile of close so the rats and the rodents and the roaches and all wouldn't crawl over me in the middle of the night. Were you working at that time? No, I was completely unemployable. I didn't know if you were yeah. like working in a restaurant, but no, no, no. Place this is the last year before I sobered up. So I sobered up in January of 92. So this is all of 91. I was trying to drink myself to death in a hotel room, Flophouse Hotel called the San Pedro that sadly no longer exists also. New York real estate. I checked into the San Pedro, ripped the phone cords out of the walls and just said, that's it, I'm just gonna drink myself to death. And it didn't happen. Some friends found me. Three days later, I was at Hazelden and that was 25 years and four months ago. Stayed living in Minnesota, stopped drinking, stopped doing drugs. It was not my first treatment. I'd been to rehabs, inpatient, outpatient, jails, psych wards, detoxes, backs of police cars, you name it. A very bad, low-bottom story. You got out of there, started cooking again? The halfway house said you got to get a job, and you have to get a job in the neighborhood. So I got a job washing dishes at a coffee shop called Dubin's, New York-style coffee shop. So they're open for breakfast and lunch. A couple times, the cook, who didn't really give a shit about his $10 an hour job, wouldn't show up, so I'd wash dishes and put out lunch. I mean, tuna fish sandwiches, burgers, grilled cheese, you know, typical kind of menu. And then I decided to leverage up to be a dishwasher in a fancy pants restaurant. And I heard that my old buddies, George and Gerard, were opening a Cafe Under Trois outpost in, of all places, Minneapolis. And so I went and put an application in as a dishwasher, and I did. You know, the dishwasher, you're watching the guys put them in. We're about two weeks into opening, uh, past opening, and one of the cooks doesn't show up at lunch. And you know, it was 200-seat brasserie, you know, fills up 
all the way at lunch and the orders come flying in and they were panicking because they didn't have another person to work the shift. And I just said, I'll work the shift. I mean, it was the grill station. It couldn't have been easier. So I said, I, I can put out the guy's station, you know, because all the prep was done. They just needed someone to cook it. And it's like, you know, well, there's, you know, the grilled trout special. And I said, yeah, I got it. I got, it. you know, got to do the onion soup under the broiler. Yeah, I got it. I got it. So I put out lunch. And the owner called me into his office and said, can you please explain why my dishwasher just did a better job on the line? I mean, just talking to other people and helping the expediter and the chef kept getting into arguments. The chef was a young, talented guy, kid who had worked for David Boulay in New York, but he was just, he didn't have leadership skills. He didn't have that thing where other people follow you over the mountain. And when the expediting state, you know, we had talented cooks and good food. Their problem, as I realized once I was on the line, was the chef just, he wanted to work the saute, saute station by himself and show everybody what a fancy pants cookie was, which is great, but you do that after you bring your team together, right? I mean, I've always had this, you know, leaders eat last kind of mentality. Like once you're done bringing us together as a team chef, then we'd like to see what you can do. But first and foremost, get our attention. Where was the transition from that to television? I got frustrated. I was seven, eight years sober and everything that I believed in life could be distilled down to trying to grow my patient's tolerance and understanding. It seemed like the world was getting more and more divisive. I needed something that allowed me to integrate what I was doing in terms of spiritual and emotional growth outside of work. And I needed to make it compatible with work for me. And so I invented a show <laughs> about growing the world's exposure to patience, tolerance, and understanding by exploring foods and cultures. But the hook was I would eat things that would really challenge your idea of being patient, tolerant, and understanding. I would really challenge your idea about not judging a book by its cover. So I sold Travel Channel The Trojan Horse. They wanted an entertainment program. Hey, I'm going to put this bug in my mouth. And I knew, I studied personality, you know, branded personality television. And I knew that, you know, after a year or two, I'd get to change the show and I'll begin to align it more. I just, I didn't have any street cred in the TV business at that point. You just took it to them, the idea? You know me well enough. I, I haven't changed that much when I see something that I would, I want. And I tell people all the time, they're like, well, what did you do? It's like, I just kept calling. And finally I said, I just would like an appointment. I just need five minutes on the phone with so-and-so. Can I just come see you? I don't care how far it is. If you cancel, I'll make another appointment. I mean, I was just like, I just want 10 minutes of your time. I just want 10 minutes of your time. Finally, Travel Channel said, okay, we really like that idea. Now go find a production company that can make it with you. And I said, I'm going to make it. And they said, no, you are. <laughs> There's only so much of you will take. Now they, they said, you need a, a company that's actually made shows and can deliver shows and the staff to do this. We don't do any deals with brand new production companies. And I said, someday I will change that, which I ended up changing, but it was a different administration. So I didn't have that vindication moment, but I, I did privately. I toasted myself when I started producing my own content at the network. When did you realize you made it like in TV or like as a personality in that sense? I'll let you know when I feel that oh, way. Oh, come on now. I'm really proud of my accomplishments. I'm really, pr I mean, every day someone comes you, up to me in a supermarket. You've done multiple seasons, so... Well, I've done 11 of the same show, which is like 200 years. I mean, like there are very few shows. There's a very small group of people. I'm not naive and I can't bullshit you. There are 20 of us at the big kids table at food Thanksgiving, you know, and I'm lucky I'm one of those people. However, 
to me, I make my show in a vacuum. You know, I'm always on the road somewhere. I never am around when it airs. I'm never around to hear it once or twice a year. You know, like I go to the Beard Awards or I go to other things and people are like, oh my God, there's this, you know, it's just so great. The thing that's the where I interact with it every day is people come to me mom stopped me in the supermarket and said, my kid eats broccoli because we play the Andrew Zimmern game. Or, I mean, just upstairs, a 25-year-old who came up to me and said, I've been watching you since I was a kid. And I was like, oh my God. But that's why I'm in the business How now. good does that feel, though? Because I travel with Rachel Ray everywhere and people come up to her in whatever city yes. and say, you taught me how to cook. And then she's like, oh, thanks. And like, she's appreciative of it and knows yes. where she came from. But then when we walk away, I was like, do you realize you change these people's lives sometimes? And she knows it. She knows it. I mean, she's she's a good lady. She knows it. I think as a defense mechanism, because otherwise life would be very difficult emotionally for people in the public eye, you learn to kind of not take it all the way in. But there are private moments every day, and I know it's true for all of us, that there's private moments where you just sit there and you're just like, oh my God, how did this... I'm so lucky. Yes, God. I'm just incredibly blessed to have that opportunity to have that kind of impact on people. But that's why I get into the social justice work, the advocacy and the thought leadership stuff so heavily that annoys all of my work colleagues because focus on the work or take time off. Choose one, but don't add other shit to do. And I spend 20 hours, at least 20 hours a week doing volunteer work or working on boards or going and donating my time, or I spent three hours this afternoon writing notes and letters to members of the Minnesota House of Representatives and the Minnesota State Senate, as well as our governor and our lieutenant governor, because they're taking away a huge chunk of funding from Snowbait, which is our tax rebate program for people doing production work in Minnesota. They're lowering the budget for the Minnesota Office of Television and Film. The Republicans in the State House have painted this as a picture of Minnesotan taxes going to liberal elites in L.A in New York that don't need our money. My point of view is that's extremely naive. A production comes in, for every dollar that they spend in any way, we get two back. That's number one. When you aggregate all the different taxes they create through the money that they're spending, jobs that they create, the average production generates 98 jobs. But more importantly, by creating a snowbait system and funding the Office of Television and Film, we are allowing real experts to create an atmosphere in which production can flourish in our state. And that helps the ad agencies. It helps, for all we know, the next two designers of a billion-dollar video game company could be at school at the University of Minnesota. If they can start a production company when they get out and get some snowbait dollars for any production that they bring in from out of state or animation work they bring in from out of state, that's good because they'll then grow that company in Minnesota, right? Yeah. So these kind of programs are jobs programs or economics stimulus packages. They do a ton of stuff for the local economy and they keep makers in our state and we can stop the brain drain of great people in our business who are going to the U of M journalism school and TV broadcast school and then leaving. I don't want them to leave. I want them to stay. And now I have a company that I started there and we, we've gotten snowbait dollars and we've gotten help from the Minnesota Office of TV and Film. We've now 
grown and grown and grown and grown. I mean, we we keep growing. We've had to move twice this year just in our physical space. So with all that said, you're sitting there for three hours this afternoon writing letters, but you do that for homelessness, I believe. You do that for hunger. You do, you're, you're an extremely genuine, generous, giving human. Well, you pick your causes because I could divide my, I could spend all year. I mean, I mean, I'd love to help blind kids, but someone else gets to help the blind kids. I've chosen my causes, adoption, addiction, and alcoholism, homelessness, and food security issues you want to talk about is where I union? focus. But because I'm a production company owner in Minnesota, I just spent the last two days with Jose Andres and Tom Calicchio and the three of us went and met with congressional leaders and Senate leaders and hosted a boot camp for other culinarians and tried to talk to them about the issues about the farm bill and about how to talk to our political leaders. I mean, it is really scary. Can you give us like a 30 second 101 on the farm bill for people who aren't familiar with the farm? Bill? The farm bill is an annual piece of legislation that's renewed every five years. Amendments are thrown at it all the time. 75% of that farm bill is made up of the $125 billion that is SNAP and other food-related benefits. SNAP, formerly food stamps. Correct. Our current president would like, and his administration, and other like-minded people would like that eliminated and or amended severely. So our number one job was like, let's keep SNAP as it is, and let's start to educate people, because it's going to be renewed in two years, right? That's when the vote comes up. So we're starting two years early so that we can go there every couple of months and teach them about the food waste issue, the food insecurity, hunger issues, the runoff into the water system issues, although based on what has been going on recently with Department of the Interior and EPA and stuff like that, that one's going to be tougher than I thought. But food touches absolutely everything we do. It's the ultimate cultural totem. Even the immigration bill is embedded in the farm bill issues. We need to understand that this is a food bill. We need to stop subsidizing these, I mean, the three largest farms in the country, farm companies, get 75% of the subsidies when we should be subsidizing family farms that are actually making food that we eat. Those farms grow corn and soybeans for feeding cattle and other animals. Those animals are in giant factory feedlot farms, and they produce 21% of the methane gas released in North America. It's a circular firing squad over there, and we have to intervene on that. We have to start spending the money on things like protecting our watershed and our food sheds, etc., and decentralizing our system and helping the small farmers so that they can get honest money for their product, and we can start to balance out. Right now, I mean, we're creating a world of fast, cheap food. I could talk about this philanthropy portion forever, but... It's important. And I work, you know, this coming up this week, we have our SUS gala, actually Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. Where are, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. There's, uh, and services for the underserved. I'm lucky enough to serve, honored to serve on the board there and have for the last five years. We help New Yorkers that no one else will help. We, we go to the New York City Wine and Food Festival, South Beach, all these festivals, mainly New York. We do cooking demos. Yep. Rachel Ray does them. You yep. do them. All these great you know, TV chef and personalities. But you get up there, I feel like, from a different point of view because before you even start cooking, you are talking to 750 (laughs) people that, like, here's the state of it. It's what's going on. But it's incredible because that's where the money is going. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. I write for Food & Wine magazine, and I've been associated with them for 
I don't know, whatever, a decade. And I'm chef in residence at Food & Wine magazine. And I write for Delta Sky and food editor, food, whatever I am there. And I've been writing with, for them for 10 years. And I have these shows and I have all these things that I do in the food space. And I own all these different companies and a hospitality company and all, everything like that. And that is all stuff that's directed at the 1%, <laughs> right? And so I'm, not only am I part of the, I see myself as part of the problem, right? So eating well in America is a class issue. So I feel obligated everywhere I go to counterbalance that by telling people how it really works, why I do what I do, why the demo they're about to see is important. There's always meaning behind everything I do. I don't do anything unintentionally, not a single fucking thing. I mean, I am a very, very intentional person. And so it's important to me that even down in South Beach, where they maybe would like another glass of Pinot Grigio and a sample of pasta, they're going to have to hear me for a couple minutes talk about famine relief in East Africa. And the it really comes down to this. I can't go to bed at night without doing something every day that makes the world a better place. For my entire life, until 25 years ago, I was a user of people and a taker of things. On my bad days, I'm still a user of people and a taker of things. So I have to keep adding to the positivity chart every place that I can. I feel like I'm in a kindergarten with that star chart again, you know, and I can see little Betsy and Johnny have more stars than me. So it's really, really super important for me as a person. I can't go to bed at night without doing that. And I, I I've also come out and challenged my colleagues. I think for those of us to whom a great big platform has been given, a tremendous amount of responsibility comes with that to do some good in the world. So that's why I do what I do. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. I want to wrap up, but there's so much to talk to because you have your restaurant business and all this and all 55, that. 55, I'm a cancer and average size. That's it, folks. Um, all right, I want to do a quick speed round with you, just quick answers and then yes three no green ready yes uh what did you have for dinner last night oh i made a japanese salad at my house before i got on because i was traveling when was the last time you ate fast food does the shake shack burger upstairs count i will let it count then 10 minutes ago name an ingredient you can't stand to see on a menu walnuts name a smell in the kitchen you love chicken fat Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Walnuts. What actor would you want to play Andrew Zimmern in a movie? Fred Flintstone. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's say your career as a chef, TV personality, and the 55 other things you do end tomorrow. Maybe you became a guitarist. No, because I suck too much. I would run for city council in the city that I live in, in Minneapolis. It's going to happen at some point. Yeah. Good. You heard it here. It would just happen sooner if all of this other stuff went away. What do you want people to say about the culinary food TV career of Andrew Zimmern, your legacy in the industry? I would like people from a professional standpoint to say he opened our eyes to other possibilities and enlarged our ideas of what food could be. I wouldn't mind it if they said that he made food in a jungle market as have as much integrity as a three-star Michelin meal in a Western city. And he looked damn sexy doing it. Andrew, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Quote, I don't do anything unintentionally, not a single fucking thing. There you have it. 
Thanks again to Andrew Zimmern. You can find him at www.andrewzimmern.com. Don't forget to tune in next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where Andrew discusses his Chairman Mao-style red braised chicken. You can find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to www.beyondtheplatepodcast.com. This episode was produced by Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, a.k.a. The Wizard, Sean Petrosian, and me. Thank you all. Music has been provided by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening site of choice. And once again, thank you to my fellow DHS warriors. Thank you for inspiring me to do this podcast. Please check out their podcast, And the Writer Is, with Ross Golan, and The Art of Wrestling with Colt Cabana. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.